Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, and I'm so excited for today's guest, who I actually have known for several years now. I'm so honored to have Jonathan Modest here on the podcast today. Jonathan Modest currently serves as a Senior Administrative Director for the Department of Urology at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. Jonathan works in close collaboration with key clinical leaders and is administratively responsible for ambulatory operations, finances, regulatory compliance, clinical research, business development, and the overall strategic direction for the Department of Urology. In addition to this, he also serves as an adjunct professor teaching lean management and healthcare at Boston University School of Public Health. Jonathan, I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you for being here today. Thrilled to be here, Yolanda. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off by asking you, you know, I did a little bit of research on you, even though I know you, and I ran across your Twitter account. And in your Twitter account bio, you describe yourself as a change facilitator and a health delivery systems innovator. And this is also on your LinkedIn, I believe. It's true. It is. Okay, good. So tell us a little bit more how these roles play out in your day to day. Yeah, it's it's a really great question, Yolanda. I, I think the reality is is that you know what what drives me every day, what pushes me to be in healthcare, is the idea of, and this actually goes across my life, not just in my professional work in healthcare, but but everywhere. What drives me um, is the idea of taking something and making it work better. I love puzzles. I love trying to fix things and put things together. You know, uh, you know, we can talk later on about how I, uh, how that translates to my free time, but um, you know, I, I have been trained in all things healthcare and, and from the early, earliest parts of my training, I've learned that things in healthcare work well. And there are a lot of things in healthcare that just don't. And the way we're going to be able to provide the greatest care possible to our patients is to uh, safely and uh, effectively acknowledge what's not working well and and figure out a way to make it work better. So I am at my best. Um, I am at my happiest professionally when we are looking at the system or a microsystem or you know, a single unit within healthcare, whether that's a physician or a clinic site or a department or a hospital and figuring out how to make that work better. And the only way to do that is through innovation. It's through getting people together and learning about from the people who are performing, performing that work on the front line, what's plaguing them, what's keeping them up at night and thinking creatively about how to build around that and build 
you know, solutions that are going to make it better. So when I say, you know, change facilitator, everything I do is about looking at how things work right now, um, you know, and what we want a future state to look like. So we're constantly innovating. If we're sitting on current processes for too long, it gets stale and nothing stays the same. I mean, you get a new car because cars break down. You, you know, go shopping every week because food expires. You do all of these things on a regular basis to keep things fresh and new. Yet in healthcare, we're, you know, carrying along processes that have been around for hundreds of years in institutions that have been around for hundreds of years. Um, and there's been, you know, and, and sometimes it's very difficult to change that. So, so the change facilitator piece of it is, is really the work that I'm doing on, on the daily to have people help me identify what's not working well and, uh, the, you know, have me help them uh, facilitate how to change that. And the delivery system innovator aspect of it is really using that change facilitation and the technologies or creative workflows or people power that's available to us to make things work better. I knew that you had a strong record and strong experience in operations and change management. And I kind of think back to myself when I was first starting off in healthcare, like those words seem so foreign to me, like in your head, you kind of know, like, okay, I get what operations mean. I think I know what change management means, but like, how do you think about those two terms and how do you think those two terms like correlate or are aligned or work together or not? Yeah. You know, as you think about the the way we provide care on a daily basis, right? There are just so many pieces that have to come together and work together to make it possible to deliver care to just one patient, right? And, you know, that includes ancillary services like labs and imaging and, uh, you know, in some cases, the emergency room. Uh, it includes department-specific services and workflows like schedule and administrative workflows like scheduling um, and, and pre-visit planning. It includes the clinical workflows like, you know, getting a patient in and sitting them down with the doctor and making sure the doctor's available at the time or around the time <laughs> you, you have scheduled a patient. And then it's about making sure that you have the information ready for you at that visit to provide that clinical care. And then it's all the downstream stuff from there, which could repeat some of the labs and it could repeat some of the imaging. It could be scheduling them for surgery. It could be performing that surgery. I mean, if you think about what the value stream is for just one patient, and then you take the fact that we do that for 1,200 patients a week, right? Those nitty gritty details of how we make care available and how we deliver that care to the patients is healthcare operations, right? And throughout the value stream, throughout what we're looking at, throughout the daily performance of that care and those administrative functions, we need to make sure those are working well um, and identifying where they're not working well. So this ties back into my change facilitator and health delivery system innovator functions. Um, but operations is about how care is delivered on a daily basis. It can be administrative in nature. It can be clinical in nature. There's different roles and responsibilities. Everybody is a part of the broader team and, and the delivery of that care. And everybody's important to it. You know, from, from the individuals who make sure our, our supplies are available to um, provide, you know, to perform prostate biopsies, to diagnose cancer, to the people who are setting up the room for that, to the individuals who are cleaning the room and preparing it for the next patient, to the individual who's taking the, the, 
the reusable instruments we have and making sure they're safely cleaned and effectively cleaned according to guidelines so that we can do it again in 45 minutes, right? To the doctors, to the nurse practitioners and physician assistants and our nurses. And I could go on forever, right? But that is healthcare operations. Healthcare operations is, you know, the people and the workflows that allow us to deliver world-class care to our patients. Okay. And, you know, you, you, you asked me, asked me about, you know, operations and change management. There is nothing that is static in healthcare, right? Things are changing. I mean, if you look back over the last two years, you know, we were sitting in the office one day on a Friday in March in 2020 doing something one way. And then the next Monday we were totally upended and having to figure out new workflows and building those new workflows and figuring out how to make sure we can make care available to them. Now that is an extreme example and hopefully an example that only happens once in our lifetime and we never have to deal with again. But all of that breaks down to the operational delivery of care. Um, and, and that's what we're doing on a daily basis. So, you know, my training, my early experience is really understanding on the front lines how we, what goes into making care available and delivering care to patients, um, you know, and, and the change management aspect of it is really working with those workflows and, in, and, and the people that are delivering those workflows and, and those pathways to make sure we're able to do it and repeat it and do it more efficiently and more effectively so that we can take the world-class care we are providing and make it more available to people. Yeah, I want to dive into something you said. Actually, I think you said it in the first question too, which is where, um, you know, there's a lot of times that maybe a process is in place that has been there and people have been doing it for a number of years just because it's the way that it's always been done. So how do you how do you personally create a system where you can reevaluate or create your have your team reevaluate these systems and communicate that to someone when they need to be changed or when they need to be updated? Like, what is that? Yeah. Like? So this is hard, right? And this is the crux of, of what change management and change facilitation is all about. And it's, it, I'm still working on getting good at it. I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but, but it's about partnering with the people that are doing the work um, and really developing a relationship with them. And, you know, focusing on the fact that that work is important um, and and asking them what keeps them up at night, asking them what about the process doesn't work. Because I think there is, no matter who, nobody shows up to work in a day and says everything is working perfectly, right? That doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't happen. Um, and if it does, I'd like to meet you because let's talk, but it, it doesn't happen. Um, so, so, you know, it's about learning from the people that are doing the work and listening to those people and going, you know, I say going to the front lines now because I'm in a position where I'm not in the front lines every day, but living on the front lines as a frontline manager or as a doer of the work or, or as a, as a operations consultant and really understanding what they do and what their pain points are. And then it's a matter of taking those pain points um, and helping the individuals that have identified them figure out how we can make it work better, right? And that sounds really easy as we talk about it and it never goes as clean as I've just kind of mentioned. Um, but the reality is, is yeah, people are guarded of the work they do because people consider the work they do um, a unique contribution to a system or to a job. And that is true. Their job is really important. But we are a growing system. And, and again, you know, my goal is to make sure we are reaching as many patients as possible with the incredible care that we can provide as safely and effectively as, as humanly possible. But in order to do that, our systems need to be 
reproducible. Our processes need to be reproducible and it can't live with just one person. Um, you know, my goal as a, as a leader is, you know, to make sure the people that are working these processes have a chance to grow in their careers. They're not going to be doing that work for 10, 20, 30 years at a time. If I'm a successful leader, they're moving on in two or three years to a new role, either in this department or somewhere else. So they're not going to be doing that. It needs to be built in a way where we can reproduce it. And, um, you know, it's about going to the front lines. It's about listening to those people. It's about finding out what's not working. And it's about working with them to figure out a way to do it better. Now, people are worried about sharing their trade secrets. People are worried about that. But that that is where you know, tools like lean management and culture, you know, the, and I would say the lean management culture itself come into play and really helping people understand we're not trying to take work away from you. We're not trying to replace you with an automated system. We are simply trying to capture the work that you're doing because we think it's really good and we want to make it best practice or reproduce it or figure out where it could be best practice. When it comes to things related to operations or change management, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? Uh, it's hard work. Um, you know, uh, patience is key and, and it's really all about relationship building. I, you know, I, I tell people a lot that I am, uh, and I mean this, I'm, I'm not just saying this, I mean this, I'm far from the smartest person in the room, right? I don't have the greatest ideas. I, um, I surround myself with a lot of people that I think have really great ideas, but being a successful leader and being a successful manager um, and being successful in changing operations is all about the relationships you have with people. Um, and 80% of that work is about building those relationships, building trust and helping people understand that you as a leader and the organizational mission um, is is in line with theirs um, and, and those things align. And, and if you are focusing on the ultimate true point, true north, if you will, and, and we're the ultimate customer, in this case, our patients, right? We're all aligned in our thinking and we all want to do, we all want to do the best for them. So I would say it, it's it, my success and the, and the, and the points I've taken and the learnings I've had is that it's really about building relationships and helping people realize that we are all working towards the same ultimate goal, though we may be taking different paths to get there. Mm -hmm. I had to say, I'm in uh, several meetings with you and I think you're really smart. I know you said you're not the smartest person. <laughs> I appreciate it, but I am far from the smartest person. <laughs> but I think it's, it's like, I, I definitely have learned um, a lot from you. And I, I like that you mentioned the you know, relationships piece, because I think sometimes it tends to get overlooked. You know, I think a lot of times we want to put together a really good plan or like a really, you know, things that just make sense on paper and, and they do make sense. But I think if you don't have that relationship piece or don't know who to reach out to or get that buy-in, like it's kind of hard to move those things along. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned a great point there. And, and I think one of the things I would reiterate is, you know, we all early in our careers, when we start in various roles, it's about doing the job and the tasks given to us in a timely manner, doing them really well. Um, and producing a product, right, a work product that people are satisfied with. And as you grow through your career and as people become in more management roles, that starts to shift a little bit. And the relationships you build and the work that you do beyond just the execution of specific tasks is equally, if not more important than the tasks themselves, right? So, 
you know, if I, I have a list of things I have to get done every day, and some of them are tasks that I know are deadlines that have to get done. And my intent is to, you know, block out 30 minutes to work on this deliverable and an hour to work on that deliverable. And what I find out is that, you know, 80% of the time I've reserved is not going to actually task completion. It's going to the communication and relationship building around those tasks. Right. And I think we're trained to do work in a way that is like, check, check, done, check, done, check, done. But the real, what I've learned from my mentors and what I've seen in, in successful people above me is that the people who are truly successful in the leadership realms are ones who can balance the fact that tasks do have to get done, that emails have to get answered, that meetings have to get scheduled with the relational aspects of the job. One of the other things I stumbled across when I was doing a little bit of research into you was a quote that um, you talked about, which is where you mentioned you weren't just interested in the challenge and opportunities that were currently facing healthcare, but you were mesmerized by them. I so, am. I'm mesmerized. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is a really, this is a really good quote. And so I, I just wanted to ask you, like is this like a natural mindset that you have, like in terms of viewing challenges in this way? Because trust me, I know plenty of people. And like, sometimes I can like, something comes up and you know, you, you know, that feeling that you get kind of in your chest of like, Oh, like I have to, like, I have to deal with this or this is, this is what I'm going to have to tackle. Yeah. And it can be a little overwhelming. So I'm, I was fascinated. And I want to learn a little bit more about like this mindset and how you had it, had it developed it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, there's a few of me out there um, I've stumbled across in my career. I think, you know, you're probably, you, you would probably agree that you're one of them in, in some case. And, and I have a few other colleagues around MGH that are a similar way. But, you know, I am not somebody who likes to sit around with the status quo. I think, you know, we spent the first 20 minutes of this conversation talking about how I love supporting and facilitating change. Um, that kind of builds into who I am as a person and a professional where like, I'm always looking to make things work a little bit better. I, I don't love falling back on the way things currently are because I recognize we could always be doing something different and the environment around us is changing in a way that we need to keep up with that also. So, you know, when I took this role here at MGH, I took it because the, the, the mentality of the leadership in this department at the time was that, you know, we're a hundred plus year old department and we're on the precipice of some major change and we're really interested in changing. The ways of old are not the ways we can continue moving forward to be successful in the future and to meet our patient needs. So, you know, I was, I was mesmerized by the fact that, you know, here's a department that's been around for over a century that recognizes it needs to change and is eager to do so. And, you know, is willing to give, you know, various professionals and various walks of life, the keys to the kingdom to be able to figure out how to do that. And, you know, I love looking at things, like I said, I'm, I'm very much driven by puzzles and things not working well and getting them to work well and taking things apart and putting them back together. It's just who I am. That's how I grew up. Um, you know, I love playing with Legos and figuring out where I used the wrong block or something like that. So, um, yes, I'm 36 and I still play with Legos. Um, uh, I could blame my daughter, but I, that wouldn't be fair. Um, you know what, you just know, to pause <laughs> as, a, as a side note, I just bought my fiance this like crazy, I think it has like 2,000 pieces. It's like a 2,000 piece Lego set. They, Lego they set? Like Lego set for adults now. And you should send like, the info to my wife. So my next, you know, the next okay. holiday or birthday, I could have I'll, I'll send it over. I just sets. had to put that plug in for <laughs> Lego. Um, 
I love it. I, I, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm just mesmerized by things that don't work well. And I love trying to figure out how to get it to work. And, and again, that comes out of the workplace. Like, you know, the lawnmower doesn't start and I take it apart and I figure out how to get it to work. You know, something doesn't work the way it should, you know, take it apart and figure out how to get it to work. And, and again, there's respectful ways to do that. And there's, you know, Tasmanian devilish ways to do that. And I, I prefer the former, um, but the reality is, is I am mesmerized by things that don't work well. And I don't, you know, I, I often don't get stressed out by things that don't work well, because I know that there's a path to fixing it so that it can work better. Everything can be improved. And perhaps that's the training I had growing up, you know, perhaps, um, you know, I, I spent 10 years working as an emergency medical technician, you know, responding to emergencies and acute situations. And, you know, maybe I've learned to kind of uh, keep a level head when I'm looking at things that that aren't working particularly well, whether that's a system or a workflow or, or somebody's bodily functions. Um, but but that's just who I am. And it's what I love. Do you think people can grow into that? Like, let's say someone's listening now and saying, sure, I don't know. That's kind of like that's that doesn't sound like me, but like I, I'd like to be that person. Um, is there any kind of like tips or anything that like any way that you could suggest they approach a challenge, right? That comes up and how can they continually maybe change to create that? Mindset? Yeah, I think, I, I think anybody's capable of changing and anybody's capable of training themselves in a way to, to, to approach things in different ways. I mean, it's why I teach a class in change management, right? I mean, I, I have 25 students every semester who, who may or may not have any experience changing things. And my goal is to teach them how to be change facilitators. So totally, I think people can change. And, and I think it's about starting small. It's about identifying places where, you know, you want to fix something, whether that's in your personal life or professional life. When I'm sitting in front of a, when I'm standing in front of a class, you know, I'm not looking at the professional world only. Like plenty of people have incredible learnings and opportunities in their personal life that they can fix. So find something that isn't working well, find something that frustrates you. Right. And, and, you know, tinker with it and figure out how to change it. And, um, that grows into a bigger change and that grows into a bigger change. And then you teach yourself or you learn the tools of what change management is, or, you know, what, what improving things is. And it, it, it may or may not become exciting. It's not for everybody, right. Being a change facilitator is not, there are plenty of people that are like, I would prefer not to change anything. I like my processes the way they are. Mm -hmm. Right. And I never want to change them and, and, or at least not be responsible for making the changes. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Right. But if you are interested in doing it, you know, test something out, change it, you know, go for a run at a different time of day, like, you know, eat yeah. dinner at a different time, try a different food. I don't know, change something. <laughs> um, and it becomes yeah. exciting. Right. Yeah. And there's a confidence thing that grows in that too. Right. Like once you do something small and you're like, it did it. And it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, you know, like as these things grow, I think that also kind of helps build a little bit. So there's a confidence thing. And then there's also, I would say, uh, something that happens to you where you become less afraid of, or, or less fearful of failure. Right. So the cool thing about this is, you know, it's okay if something doesn't work. And that's what helps me get through the day. I am not striving for me to be perfect. I am striving to improve something that's not working well. And even if it's an incremental improvement, that's fine. And even if a change I make causes it not to improve at all, that's fine. We're ruling it out, right? Think about Wordle. 
right? This is the hottest thing right now in the world is, you know, the, the New York Times, now New York Times Wordle, right? That is all built on the idea of deduction and change management, right? You're starting with six letters. Those six letters may or may not work. And you have five more chances after your first try to figure out how to get it to work. And you're using different tips, tools, tricks, and, and things like that to figure out how to make it work. And Sometimes you fail. Sometimes you don't get it in six tries, right? But that's okay. There's always another day. You'll wake up tomorrow and there'll be a new puzzle, right? This is that. It's clear, like you have grown in terms of like the challenges that you're taking on, right? So I guess I would really like to hear your opinion on what the biggest challenges facing healthcare today, what you think they are. And then, you know, is there an example you can share of how you're tackling some of these things in your day-to-day or in your current role? I think there's a million things plaguing healthcare right now. And I think part of where I have been successful in my career is focusing on the things that I have control on, right? It's a little bit of cognitive behavior theory here. So we could sit here and talk about, you know, insurance and access to care and things like that and and not make a dent in that. You know, we could talk about healthcare policies. We could talk about a million different things. That's not going to make a difference. For me, I mean, there's somebody out there working on that. I'm not working on that. Um, you know, so so the things that I think are plaguing healthcare right now, at least in the, in the view of me as a leader of the Department of Urology, uh, is access to care, right? And and access to urologic care and the time in which we get patients in, right? So, so we're coming out of a two-year pandemic. Um, patients, for many reasons, delayed care during that time out of, you know, fear for catching the virus, uh, you know, following government regulations around staying home, um, just, you know, falling into whatever patterns we have over the last two years. And what we're seeing is people are um, sicker um, and in need of more care, you know, adding on to that, the fact that people are living longer and, you know, 80% of people over 60 end up with a urology issue anyway, you know, the demand for care is through the roof. Um, so the challenges that I have that I see is how do I take a system of care, um, a really good talented group of doctors and advanced practice providers and nurses and administrative and clinical support staff and make that more accessible to the people that need the care without breaking the system, right? Mm -hmm. So not necessarily doing more with less or doing more with the same, but building the system in a way that allows us to make our state-of-the-art technologies, our incredible talent, um, and uh, and our ability to cure patients available to anybody that needs it. Um, And that's a challenge because there are capacity constraints. There are physical space constraints. There are technology constraints. There are geographical constraints. There's competition out there. There's, um, you know, a a system of care that's trying to form and be more efficient around us in the form of MGB and leverage those tools, which is great. But not only am I trying to now figure out how to do this within the Department of Urology, but we're trying to think about how to do that more broadly within a system of MGB that includes multiple departments of urology, right? So, So I think the biggest challenge is how to safely effectively, efficiently grow and evolve a department in a way that prevents burnout for our faculty and and providers and staff, 
um, but makes the care that patients deserve available to them. And I think that is a big enough challenge to keep me busy for the remainder of my career. Um, the way we tackle that might be different from, you know, strategic growth in particular areas to working on existing workflows, to building new scheduling protocols, to changing access to, you know, phone access and supporting, you know, internet-based interactions. And I mean, there's a million ways we could go about it, but that's the challenge that I have and, and making sure we do it in a way where, you know, healthcare is expensive in a way that the department stays viable so we can invest in continuing to advance the care we are providing, right? Because the, the, the tools and the instruments that we use today are going to be outdated two years down the line. The physical space that we have today is going to need to be updated several years down the line, right? And all of that plays into how we grow the system. So I, that's the biggest challenge we face. It's ultimately, how do we provide the best possible urologic care or whatever care you're in charge of um, to the patients and families that entrust us with it? When you think about the different challenges, like geographical challenges, things related to workflow, et cetera, like how do you kind of prioritize which you'll tackle first? Or do you say, yeah, I guess maybe we'll start there. How do you determine like which which challenge will you tackle first that will have the greatest impact? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think it's really about hearing what is plaguing people the most. Um, you know, obviously there's there's parallel workflows and parallel work streams that we're working on, right? Strategically and geographically, we're working on growing into the community. Internally, we're working on building processes and rebuilding processes so they're more efficient. I think, you know, we try and break down those large buckets of work and, you know, whether it's strategic growth or operational efficiency or things like that. And we try and focus on specific low-hanging fruit areas within each of those larger buckets of work to tackle at a particular time. So in the spirit of, you know, in the focus of operational efficiency, I'm working on the thing that's keeping people up most at night or that's causing them to come to our door screaming, um, you know, in, in frustration or something like that so that we can try and make that better. Um, we often survey our faculty and, and, you know, that relationship building I'm doing, we, all, we often have conversations with our faculty um, and our providers and our staff, or at least try to, um, to identify what the hot button topics are at the moment, right? Um, we talk with our partners in the community, uh, you know, and, and, and understand, you know, look at community patterns to understand what the lowest hanging fruit is for, for community-based um, strategic growth and how we can make that care more available there. We talk with our referring providers in the community. So I, I think it, the long story short, you know, the theme that I'm really trying to get at here is, again, it's about communicating and, and listening mm -hmm. um, to what's, what's at the top of people's mind so we can try and focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of that really leads up to, you know, this, um, you gave us a lot of insight into the challenge, like the biggest challenge that you're facing in your role. And so I think I, I'm going to take a couple steps back here and ask you, like, how did this role of you becoming a senior administrative director of urology even come about? interesting. When I joined the department, uh, you know, about six and a half years ago, I, I joined a department that um, was about half the size it is right now. Um, it was it was growing. It was slated for significant growth. We had a new chief at the time who was, um, you know, really eager to put his kind of um, mark on the department and help it evolve into a, a, 
a new department. And, and again, I mentioned in previous comments that what excited me about it was a department that was eager and ready for change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so I joined it as an administrative manager. <clears throat> um, I came over from Boston Children's Hospital from a program management role, um, you know, where I was working on workflows and, and, and things like that to help improve care pathways for patients over there. Um, it was more of a consulting program management role. And I felt like I was at a time in my career where I either needed to double down on the career path I was on in program management or make a jump to gain some experience in managing people. Um, and I felt like the managing people piece was going to allow me the largest potential growth at the time. So came over here and, you know, took on uh, people and process management internal to the department, um, you know, reporting to then the senior administrative director of the department. I was the, uh, first additional real manager in that department at that time. They had a part-time clinical manager who was managing clinical aspects, but there was no focus on operations. You know, the department was uh, kind of run as 15, you know, 12 to 15 different practices because that's the way um, uh, it was set up and the, and the doctors were operating. And that was fine for the time. It's just as, as times have moved on and as systems have changed, there was a need to be a little bit more of a united department of urology. Mm -hmm. Um, so I came in and, and, you know, we were building a brand new space. We were about to quadruple our footprints, uh, our square foot footprint on the main campus. And, um, you know, they needed an operations manager. So I came in and I, I worked my butt off for a couple of years, launching the new site and, you know, building teams and, and, documenting processes and, and things like that. And, you know, uh, the opportunity came to grow into an administrative director of operations role as the department grew kind of around me. Um, you know, and I, I continued to advocate, you know, my, my goal is to keep my head down and do a ton of work and really prove myself, but also to advocate for my own growth. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, if you do that in the right balance and respectfully, you know, oftentimes the growth comes, um, or at least the people that you report to support growth in whatever way that that may take shape. Uh, and then, uh, you know, right uh, about six months ahead of the pandemic, um, three months, three, four months ahead of the pandemic, um, you know, my boss came to me and, and mentioned he was interested in, in retiring and what my thoughts were around kind of his role and, and stuff like that. And we spent, you know, several months talking about what that would look like. And he ultimately retired in June of 2020 as the pandemic kind of really was uh, taking hold. And, um, you know, I, here I am. And what do you think keeps you motivated to do what you do every day, right? There's a lot to take on. There's a lot of things that come up in your day to day yeah. that you're thinking about. And I'm sure that there are some things that there, you probably, I don't know, you may have some moments where you're like, oh, this, this is kind of tough, right? Like what motivates you to like, just keep going and keep taking each challenge on? Uh, the Starbucks on Cambridge street <laughs> is a great motivator. Um, I love that Starbucks. <laughs> I love that Starbucks. The baristas there are really fantastic, by the way, just putting a plug in if you're ever in the MGH area. Um, uh, they should sponsor. I need to get this to like, Starbucks. they should totally, yeah, show this to them. They should totally sponsor. Um, you know, I think it's hard. I think you've, you've, so I'm motivated and energized by what we're capable of doing and the gains that we're able to see in, in what we're delivering and the care we're delivering. I'd say the, the broader, higher level view is hard to take, um, is harder to remember to take when you're in the weeds and fighting the battles every day. Um, so not every day is, is, is roses and sunshine. Um, 
some days are tiring. Some stretches are mind bogglingly, um, exhausting. Uh, but I, I just think keeping your eye kind of on the future, uh, and the, you know, the, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel is always what keeps you there. And, you know, there are days that I, I mean, I walked into my boss's office the other day and I said, I just don't know that I I'm capable of doing this because it was a really hard day and things just weren't going well. And not only were things not going well, nothing was going well, right? Like if you could design a day that had everything go wrong in one day, this was it. It was probably one of the hardest of my professional career. Um, you know, but, but I think what, what gets me through it is that day will end, right? I, I don't know. Think back to Julia Roberts and my best friend's wedding, like this too shall pass. Like, yeah. well, yes, I'm a rom-com lover. Uh, get over it. Um, uh, this too shall pass, right? A, a 10 hour day is going to end. Like at some point, somebody's going to put an end to the day. You are going to close your eyes and you were going to hopefully sleep for a few hours and wake up the next day and try it again. Right. So, so whatever you're dealing with at that moment in time, like just, breathe. And that's easy for me to say three days after the worst day of my career. Um, but it is, uh, it is a reality. And, and I think some people, the people who are cut out for this, the people who are, um, able to stick with this are those that really understand that, um, and can, and can navigate the worst days and have, have, you know, I also have great supports both professionally and, and personally, I have family that I can talk to and vent to. Um, I have professional, you know, uh, uh, friendships that, that, that help me get through the day and, and, uh, confidants that I can vent to and, and express frustrations to and help me think through, but, you know, problems. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's about not keeping it bottled up and not internalizing it and, uh, you know, letting the pressure valve out every once in a while. I appreciate that you have been like really authentic in this conversation because I don't, I, I think sometimes it's really easy in our day and age to kind of look at someone in, in a position like yours and really think like, gosh, that is so like, that's awesome. Right. And I think everyone, it, it's great that people aspire, right. To, to be in a role like that. But I do think it's, it's, um, it is important for us to also be honest and kind of the challenges that come with, you know, being in a role that you are in, right. You do have to make difficult decisions. You do have to have difficult conversations. And I think like, yeah, you definitely do have days where it's not going to be all like, and you do, and you do screw up on the daily, right? Like yeah, every day. Yep. Oh yeah. There's, there's moments where you're just like, you know, like say a meeting ends and you're just like, Oh, like, but I, I will say like the, what you said about having a really good support system. Um, and I think we're both really fortunate to have the people that we do around us. It's like, I know I could call you after a meeting and kind of say like, I don't really know if this went well, or like, what do you think about this and this? And like, I really appreciate knowing that I like uncomfortable enough to be able to give you that call and yeah. think through that with you, because sometimes I don't think a lot of people have that right and and that kind yeah, of the fe- and the feeling is mutual and i think it's that is instrumental in being able to you know there's a difference between having a support system and being able to vet things off of people and vent versus being unprofessional. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that don't think they can do that because it's unprofessional. Um, and I would say that that's totally acceptable, you know, find the people you can trust, find the people you can vet things off of and complain to because, you know, frustration, there is no job that is sans frustration, right? There's just, there's not. Um, and you know, I, you and I have had calls after meetings where I've picked up the phone and called you. And I was like, what the hell was that? (laughs) Right. 
Yep. <laughs> that's fine. Like we're all going to do that. Like we all have our opinions. We all have our things and, and that support system is instrumental. Exactly. Well, I know that I'm going to have a lot of listeners wanting to learn more about you, wanting to connect with you, I'm sure. So do you have any like what Twitter are you on Twitter? Are yeah. You- so I'm on Twitter yeah. though. I'd like to get a little bit better at tweeting more often. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, uh, you can certainly follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can reach out via LinkedIn, uh, certainly try and respond as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to connect, um, with anybody who's interested. Great. Well, I will make sure that I link, uh, put those links, um, up whenever we release this. Awesome. And so now we're getting to, uh, fun questions. We're going to get to our rapid fire. So I always like, kind of like to save these at the end and they're really just for us to get to know you a little bit more. So, um, one of my first questions is what is your Myers-Briggs personality? Is it it not obvious? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am a hardcore ENTJ, hardcore ENTJ, like as ENTJ bottom right hand corner as you could possibly get. That is awesome. Okay. I think I need, I, yeah, I think I knew that. I've um, done Myers-Briggs like 12 times in my life and I have never varied from ENTJ. Like most people like teeter between different boxes. It has never once come up different. It's Not like once. very clear cut. Like, it's just your... like the Myers-Briggs is like you again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know what? That's like what Finn Sushi, the listeners won't know what this means, but like, I love Finn Sushi. It's yeah, so do I. place around here. And they know me, like they just know me as soon as I walk in and what my order is. And I'm like, I have a problem. <laughs> so do we have time for like a two minute story? Is that yes. okay? Yeah. All right. So when I first got here and I told you we were redoing the department, you know, I, I, I didn't do it alone. I can't take all the credit for it. There was a consulting firm that was starting around the same time I did to help us do the, the to help us go through the engagement and do the organizational redesign and all that stuff. That's not the important part. The important part is one of the consultants that I was working very closely with was in fact a sushi aficionado like I was. And he and I uh, would have weekly Friday afternoon touch bases at Finn's Sushi across the street from the hospital. Again, when you come to Mass General Hospital for visit, get a coffee at Starbucks and stop at Finn's Sushi. Um, we would go in and we would order like $200 worth of sushi between the two of us, like five rolls each, Okay five rolls each. And we would crush it every Friday. And they got to know us. So the first time we placed the order, we placed the order for the first five rolls. You know, my colleague put in his order and she started to walk away. And I'm like, excuse me, where are you going? We're not done. And she's like, no. Uh, So we ordered five more rolls and she's like, and who else is coming? And we're like, no one. She's like, okay. Uh, So she walked away. So we did this for weeks and weeks and months and months. And at one point, I walked in and I sat down without him and I was meeting somebody else and I was meeting somebody who didn't know my eating habits and I didn't want them to know my eating habits at the time. So that person ordered like one roll and I ordered two rolls and she's like, what about your four other rolls? And the person I'm eating lunch with looked at me and she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, thanks. (laughs) That's too good. Well, I guess that kind of gets to my next question, which is, what can we find you doing on most days? Eating, eating sushi. Um, I, uh, so I have long been a food aficionado. Um, that's uh, not on your bio. I know I should put it there. I should, it, 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 it may be on my Twitter. It may be more on Twitter than, than on, on LinkedIn, but I'm a food aficionado. Um, before my wife and I moved from Brookline to the Burbs, we, um, you know, we would, uh, we knew the list of, of some of the latest and greatest and most popular restaurants. Um, 
we now have that list growing on, you know, south of Boston, uh, down in Sharon, Massachusetts. Um, I really, you know, I think I mentioned it before. I love tinkering with things. I love doing things outside. I like making things. I, uh, I've recently taken up uh, carpentry and, and woodworking and, and just buy wood by the pallet and, you know, cut it and turn it into things. So that's, that's fun. Um, you know, and I really like, uh, you know, riding around my, my, my yard on my lawnmower and, uh, you know, playing with my, you know, two-year-old daughter and uh, eating lots of food. Love it. So what's the book or podcast recommendation that you can share? Oh, man. Um, so I really am a, well, I'm going to put a plug in for a book that I really love just because it gets you into my thinking. It's called On the Mend. So On the Mend is uh, a lean management book. Um, it's not, you know, it's it's easy reading. Um, it's not, it's not, uh, non, it's not fictional. Um, mm-hmm. But On the Mend is really great. Um, and um, you know, I love, I, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts. I did it for a while while I was on, while I was commuting in on the train, but, um, now I'm, I'm big into my sports and my sports radio and stuff like that, but pick up on the mend. It's a, it's a really incredible book. Um, other than that, I've been reading a ton of parenting books that I'm not going to bore you guys with because, uh, well, you don't need to deal with that. <laughs> That's my problem, not yours. <laughs> All right. On the mend, on the mend. Um, and, Lastly, what is the best advice you've received that you can share with our audience today? Yeah, I've said it a few times. I mean, uh, you know, the, everything you do in 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 uh, professional and personal life is about the relationships you build. So just focus on the relationships you have with people, both personally and professionally, and it'll get you uh, as far as you want to go. Yeah. Jonathan, I had so much fun in this conversation and like, I know you professionally, I know you personally, and I think it's so great to be able to get you on here and for you to share this message, just because I think that it definitely has me inspired and thinking, and I know that it will um, definitely uh, be of value to our audience. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.